1893 Chicago World's Fair was one of the greatest expositions of its time. With extravagant venues and buildings, the fair was the world's introduction to the dishwasher and Edison's light bulbs. The Pledge of Allegiance was first performed at the exposition by a mass of schoolchildren lined up in a military fashion. But even more so, the introduction of household names, products that we still use today, such as cream of wheat, juicy fruit gum, Baena sausages, shredded wheat, Quaker oats, Aunt Jemima, Paps Blue Ribbon beer, peanut butter, and Cracker Jacks. Now, the event was not without tragedy. You see, Chicago's Mayor Carter Harrison Sr. was murdered two days prior to the event, and then there was a fire at a 200-foot-tall refrigerator exhibit, which claimed the lives of 12 firemen and four workers. But in the shadows of the exposition lay something darker and more sinister. A serial killer was hunting his prey. Chicago had been home to a serial killer during the fair, and for several years before and during the exposition, Herman Mudgett, also known as Dr. H.H. H. Holmes, was busily luring victims, including a number of fairgoers, to a three-story block long building later known as the Murder Castle, where they were tortured, mutilated, and killed. And although Holmes' heinous crimes weren't discovered until after the fair ended, it is believed that he was responsible for a dozens of deaths in Chicago. And in fact, he may have killed as many as 200 people nationwide before his murderous spree ended with his 1894 arrest. This is the unbelievable story of America's Ripper, Dr. H. H. Holmes. Recorded in Rocket City, USA. No bullshit. Just real talk. And now Deuce Conrad. Dr. Henry Howard Holmes was born as Herman Webster Mudgett in Gilmantown, New Hampshire on May 16, 1861 to Levi Horton Mudgett and Theodate Page Price, both of whom were descended from the first English immigrants in the area. Now, Mudgett was his parents' third-born child, and even though he had an older sister, Ellen, and an older brother, Arthur, and a younger brother, Henry, and a younger sister, Mary, he seemed to just fit right on in, just like any other of the children. Holmes' father was uh, from a farming family, and at times he worked as a farmer, and sometimes as a trader, and, and even sometimes as a house painter. And his parents were devout Methodists, but one thing is for certain, they made sure that their children had everything that they needed to thrive. Later attempts to fit Holmes into the pattern seen in the modern serial killers have described him torturing animals and suffering from abuse at the hands of a violent father, but contemporary and eyewitness accounts of his childhood quite simply do not provide proof of either. Now, at the age of 16, Holmes graduated from Phillips Exeter Academy and took teaching jobs in Gilmanton and later in nearby Alton. 
And on July 4th, 1878, he married Clara Lovering in Alton, and their son Robert Lovering Mudgett was born on February the 3rd of 1880 in Loudoun, New Hampshire. And you see, Robert even became a certified public accountant and later served as the city manager of Orlando, Florida. Holmes enrolled in the University of Vermont in Burlington at the age of 18, but was dissatisfied with the school and left after one year. But in 1882, he entered the University of Michigan's Department of Medicine and Surgery and graduated some two years later in June of 1884 after passing his exams. While enrolled, he worked in the anatomy lab under Professor William James Herdman, then the chief anatomy instructor, and the two were said to have been engaged in facilitating grave robbing to supply medical cadavers. Now, Holmes had apprenticed in New Hampshire under Nahum White, a noted advocate of human dissection. And years later, when Holmes was suspected of murder and claimed to be nothing but an insurance fraudster, he admitted to using cadavers to defraud life insurance companies several times in college. Now, some of his housemates described Holmes as treating Clara violently, and in 1884, before his graduation, she moved back to New Hampshire. And she later wrote that she knew little of him afterwards. But after he moved to Moore's Forks, New York, a rumor spread that Holmes had been seen with a little boy who later disappeared. And Holmes claimed that the boy went back to his home in Massachusetts, but no investigation took place and Holmes quickly left town. He later traveled to Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and got a job as a keeper at Norristown State Hospital, but soon quit after a few days. He later took a position at a drugstore in Philadelphia, but while he was there working, a boy died after taking medicine that was purchased at the store. Now, Holmes denied any involvement in the child's death and immediately left the city. But it was right before moving to Chicago that he changed his name to Henry Howard Holmes to avoid the possibility of being exposed by victims of his previous scams. In his confession after his arrest, Holmes claimed he had killed his former medical school classmate Robert Leacock in 1886 for insurance money. Leacock, however, died in Watford, Ontario in Canada on October the 5th, 1889. And then in late 1886, while married to Clara, Holmes married Murda Belknap in Minneapolis, Minnesota. He filed for divorce from Clara a few weeks later after marrying Murda, alleging infidelity on her part. Now, the claims could not be proven, and the suit went nowhere, but surviving paperwork indicated she probably was never even informed of the suit. And in any case, the divorce was never finalized, and it was dismissed on June 4, 1891, on the grounds of want of prosecution. Now, Holmes would have a daughter with murder. Her name was Lucy Theodate Holmes, who was born on July the 4th, 1889, in Englewood, Chicago, Illinois. And Lucy would go on to become a public school teacher. And Holmes lived with Murda and Lucy in Wilmette, Illinois, and spent most of his time in Chicago tending to business. And then again, Holmes would marry again, this time to Georgiana Yoke on January the 17th, 1894, in Denver, Colorado. All the while, he was still married to both Clara and Murda.
Do you have a beard? It's a legitimate question. You know, a beard says a lot about a man. A beard can define a man just by looking at him. Screw what they say. You can judge a book by its cover, and a beard is one hell of a cover. But let me ask you this. How do you take care of your beard? Are you putting chemicals into your face that will basically eat the hide off of a zombie? Stop that shit. Be a badass and start using badass beard care. Look, it's all natural. It's made by badass vets. And it will make your beard so incredibly soft, so incredibly manly. And you can get a free trial set today by going to deuceconrad.com and selecting own promotions. If you're like me and you're wanting to lose weight or control diabetes, a low-carb diet or a ketogenic diet may be what you need. And that can seem overwhelming at first, but wholesomeyum.com has organized groups of over 230 low-carb foods, including veggies, proteins, dairy, seasonings, condiments, fruit, and more, so that you know exactly what you can and cannot eat on keto. Go to deuceconradshow.com, click on promotions, and there's a link for you to get all sorts of free ebooks, recipes, and, and basically any information uh, that you could ever want uh, about the keto diet. Or you can simply click the link in the bio for more information. As we mentioned, Dr. Henry Holmes arrived in Chicago in August of 1886, and that's when he began using the name H.H. Holmes. It was then that he came across Elizabeth S. Holton's drugstore at the northwest corner of South Wallace Avenue and West 63rd Street in Englewood. Now, Holton was kind enough to give Holmes a job, and he proved to be a hardworking employee, eventually buying the store. And although several books portray Holton's husband as an old man who quickly vanished along with his wife, Dr. Holton was a fellow Michigan alumnus only a few years older than Holmes, and both Holtons remained in Englewood throughout Holmes' life and survived well into the 20th century. So it is a myth that they were killed by Holmes. Likewise, Holmes did not kill alleged castle victim Miss Kate Durkee, who turned out to be very much alive, but Holmes did purchase an empty lot across from the drugstore where construction began in 1887 for a two-story mixed-use building with apartments on the second floor and retail spaces, including a new drugstore. A creditor of Holmes named John de Brule died of uh, apoplexy on April 17, 1891, in the drugstore, and that's when Holmes declined to pay the architects of the steel company Aetna Iron and Steel, and they would eventually sue him in 1888. Now, in 1892, he added a third floor, telling investors and suppliers that he intended to use it as a hotel during the upcoming World's Columbian Exposition, also known as the Chicago World's Fair. 
though the hotel portion was never completed. But in 1892, the hotel was somewhat completed with three stories in a basement, and the ground floor was a storefront. Now, there are some fictionalized accounts which report that Holmes constructed the hotel to lure in tourists visiting the nearby World's Fair in order to murder them and sell their skeletons to medical schools. But there's no evidence that Holmes ever tried to lure strangers into his hotel to murder them. In fact, none of his likely victims were strangers. Holmes did have a, uh, have a history of selling cadavers to medical schools. However, he acquired his wares to the grave robbing rather than murder. Now, reports by the Yellow Press labeled the building as Holmes Murder Castle, claiming the structure contained secret torture chambers, trapdoors, gas chambers, and a basement crematorium, but none of these claims were true. Now, other accounts claim that the hotel was made up of over a hundred rooms and laid out like a maze with doors opening into brick walls, windowless rooms, and dead-end staircases, but in reality, the hotel floor was moderately sized and largely unremarkable. It did contain some hidden rooms, but they were used for hiding furniture homes bought on credit and did not intend to pay for. Now, the hotel in question was gutted by a fire started by an unknown arsonist shortly after Holmes was arrested, but was largely rebuilt and used as a post office until 1938. Besides the infamous murder castle, Holmes also had a one-story factory which he claimed was to be used for glass bending. Now, it is unclear if the factory furnace was ever used for glass bending, but it was speculated to have been used to destroy incriminating evidence of Holmes' crimes. Are you looking for unbiased news in a world of biased media? Look no further. 1440 provides an impartial view of what's happening in the world so our readers can form their own conclusions. 1440 scours hundreds of sources each and every day to bring you a single morning briefing thoughtfully curated by experts. Straight to your email with no haggling or unnecessary spam. Get even more benefits by signing up to the Deuce Conrad Show affiliate link. Visit www.deuceconradshow.com and select Promotions to sign up today. Holmes' early victims was his mistress, Julia Smythe. Now, she was the wife of Ned Connor, who had moved into Holmes' building and began working at his pharmacy's jewelry counter. After Connor found out about Smythe's affair with Holmes, he quit his job and moved away, leaving Smythe and her daughter Pearl behind. Now, Smythe gained custody of Pearl and remained at the hotel, continuing her relationship with Holmes. But Julia and Pearl would disappear on Christmas Eve of 1891, and Holmes later claimed that she had died during an abortion. Now, despite his medical background, Holmes was unlikely to be experienced in carrying out abortions, and mortality from such a procedure was high at the time. 
but Holmes claimed to have poisoned Pearl, likely to hide the circumstances of her mother's death. A partial skeleton, possibly of a child around Pearl's age, was found when excavating Holmes' cellar. Pearl's father, Ned, was a key witness at Holmes' trial in Chicago. Emmeline Sagrande began working in the building in May of 1892 and disappeared that December. Now, rumors following her disappearance claimed that she had gotten pregnant by Holmes and possibly being a victim of another failed abortion, which Holmes tried to cover up. And yet there was another young girl who had worked for Holmes in his building, and her name was Emily Van Tassel. And guess what? She vanished too. While working in the chemical bank building on Dearborn Street, Holmes met and became close friends with Benjamin Pitzel, a carpenter with a criminal past who was exhibiting in the same building a coal bin that he had invented. Now, Holmes used Pitzel as, a, as his right-hand man for several criminal schemes. A district attorney later described Pitzel as Holmes' tool, his creature, if you will. In early 1893, a one-time actress named Minnie Williams moved to Chicago, and Holmes claimed to have, have met her in a, an employment office, And though there were rumors that he had met her in Boston years earlier. Nonetheless, he offered her a job at the hotel as his personal stenographer, and she accepted. Holmes persuaded Williams to transfer the deed of her property in Fort Worth, Texas, to a man named Alexander Bond which was an alias of Holmes. And then in April of 1893, Williams transferred the deed with Holmes serving as the notary. Now, Holmes later would sign that deed over to Pitzel, giving him the alias, Benton T. Lyman. And then the next month, Holmes and Williams, presenting themselves as husband and wife, rented an apartment in Chicago's Lincoln Park. Minnie's sister, Annie, came to visit, and in July, she wrote to her aunt that she had planned to accompany Brother Harry to Europe. Neither Minnie nor Annie were seen alive after July 5th of 1893. Now, although not proven that Holmes was suspected of killing six other persons who vanished between 1891 and 1895, Dr. Russler, who had an office in the castle, went missing in 1892 as well. And it just keeps getting deeper and deeper as Kitty Kelly, a stenographer for Holmes, also went missing in 1892. Then there was John G. Davis of Greenville, Pennsylvania, who went to visit the 1893 World's Fair and vanished. Just vanished. In 1920, his daughter asked that he be declared legally dead. And then Henry Walker of Greensburg, Indiana, who went missing in November of 1893, was alleged to have insured his life to Holmes for about $20,000 and wrote to friends that he was working for Holmes in Chicago. And then there was Milford Cole of Baltimore, Maryland, who was alleged to have disappeared after receiving a telegram from Holmes to come to Chicago in July of 1894. And then an otherwise unknown victim was a Lucy Burbank. Her bank book was found in the castle in 1895. But as far as Lucy goes, she was never seen again.
What if I told you that you could own slices of the company's funds and crypto assets that you believe in, starting with as little as $1? You see, fractional investing makes it easy to start small and add as you gain confidence. Now, Public offers thousands of stocks and ETFs that you can own no matter where you start from. Go to www.deuceconradshow.com and select the promotions link. From there, you can sign up directly with Public and get a free stock. I bet you have been to Walmart at some time in your life and probably shopped there. I bet you even probably get groceries there from time to time. Did you know that Walmart has grocery pickup? And in fact, I can save you $15 on your first order of $50 or more. For more information, go to www.deuceconradshow.com and select promotions. There will be a link there where you can sign up as a new customer. And again, you'll save $15 on that first order of $50 or more. With insurance companies pressing to prosecute Holmes for arson, he eventually left Chicago in July of 1894, but he would reappear in Fort Worth where he had inherited property from the Williams sisters at the intersection of modern-day Commerce Street and 2nd Street. It was here in Texas that he once again attempted to build an incomplete structure without paying his suppliers and contractors, but this building was not a site of any additional killings. In July of 1894, Holmes was arrested and briefly jailed for the first time on the charge of selling mortgaged goods in St. Louis, Missouri. He was promptly bailed out, but while in jail, he struck up a conversation with a convicted outlaw named Marion Hedgepeth, who was serving a 25-year sentence. Now, Holmes had concocted a plan, you see, to swindle an insurance company out of $10,000 by taking out a policy on himself and then faking his death. Holmes promised Hedgepeth a $500 commission in exchange for the name of a lawyer who could be trusted, and Holmes was directed to a young St. Louis attorney named Jephthah Howe. Now, Howe thought Holmes' scheme was brilliant and agreed to play a part. Nevertheless, Holmes' plan to fake his own death failed when the insurance company became suspicious and they refused to pay. Holmes did not press a claim. Instead, he concocted a similar plan with Pitzel. Pitzel agreed to fake his own death so that his wife could collect on a $10,000 life insurance policy, which she was to split with Holmes and Howe. Now, that scheme, which was also, uh, which was supposed to take place in Philadelphia, called for Pitzel to set himself up as an inventor under the name of B.F. Perry and then be killed and disfigured in a lab explosion. Now, it was up to Holmes, the experienced grave robber, to find a, an appropriate cadaver to play the role of Pitzel. Instead, Holmes killed Pitzel by knocking him unconscious with chloroform and setting his body on fire with the use of benzene. Now, in his confession, Holmes implied that Pitzel was still alive after he used the chloroform on him. That was even before he set him on fire. Wow. However, forensic evidence presented at Holmes' uh, trial uh, showed that chloroform had been administered after Pitzel's death, a fact of which the insurance company was unaware. Now, presumably to fake suicide to exonerate Holmes should he be charged with murder. Holmes collected the insurance payout on the basis of the 
genuine Pitzel corpse, and Holmes then went on to manipulate Pitzel's unsuspecting wife into allowing three of her five children, Alice, Nellie, and Howard, to be placed in his custody. This guy was a real piece of work. Now, the eldest daughter and the baby remained with Miss Pitzel, and Holmes and the three Pitzel children traveled throughout the northern United States and into Canada. And simultaneously, during all this, he escorted Miss Pitzel along a parallel route, all the while using various aliases and lying to Miss Pitzel concerning her husband's death, claiming that Pitzel was hiding in London, as well as lying to her about the, the, the true whereabouts of her three missing children. But it was in Detroit, just before entering Canada, they were only separated by a few blocks. And even more audacious move. Holmes was staying at another location with his wife, who was unaware of the whole affair. Dr. Holmes later confessed to murdering Alice and Nellie by forcing them into a large trunk and locking them inside. He drilled a hole in the lid of the trunk and then put one end of the hose to the hole, attaching the other end to a gas line to asphyxiate the girls. Holmes then buried their nude bodies in the cellar of his rental house at 16 St. Vincent Street in Toronto. This home and address no longer exists. Now, St. Vincent Street, having long since been realigned into a, a part of Bay Street. But it was Frank Geyer, a Philadelphia police detective assigned to investigate homes and find the three missing children that found the decomposed bodies of the two Pitzel girls in the cellar of the Toronto home. Detective Geyer wrote, the deeper we dug, the more horrible the odor became, and when we reached the depth of three feet, we discovered what appeared to be the bone of the forearm of a human being. Geyer then went to Indianapolis, where Holmes had rented a cottage, and Holmes was reported to have visited a local pharmacy to purchase the drugs which he used to kill young Howard Pitzel, and a repair shop to sharpen the knives he used to chop up the body before he burned it. The boy's teeth and bits of bone were discovered in the home's chimney. Hey, Deuce Conrad here. I just want to tell you about Ibotta. Ibotta is one of the greatest things I have ever laid my eyes on. It's a it's a great tool for actually earning money. And trust me, I've tried all these surveys and everything that the internet seems to say that you're going to make money, but nothing has made me money like Ibotta. In my first week of trying Ibotta, I earned approximately 40 bucks just shopping. It's like coupon savings for people that don't like to clip coupons. Anyways, there is a link in the description of this podcast uh, for you to become a partner with me in Ibotta. And when you submit your first receipt, you'll earn 10 bucks. That simple, that easy, just by going and shopping at places that you're already shopping, such as Walmart, Kroger, Publix. And it's easy to cash out as well. You can get uh, gift cards to Amazon or have a direct payment made to you. Anyways, check the link down below. Use uh, the referral code K-A-X-R-F-W-J and earn $10 on your first receipt submitted.
Dr. H. H. Holmes' murder spree finally ended when he was arrested in Boston on November the 17th, 1894. After being tracked there from Philadelphia by the private Pinkerton National Detective Agents, he was held on an outstanding warrant for horse theft in Texas because the authorities had become more suspicious at this point and Holmes appeared poised to flee the country in the company of his unsuspecting third wife. In July of 1895, following the discovery of Alice and Nellie's bodies, Chicago police and reporters began investigating Holmes' building in Inglewood, now locally referred to as the castle. Though many sensational claims were made, no evidence was found in which could have convicted Holmes in Chicago. And according to Selzer, stories of torture equipment found in the building are 20th century fiction. But in October of 1895, Holmes was put on trial for the murder of Benjamin Pitzel and was found guilty and sentenced to death. But by then, it was evident that Holmes had also murdered the three missing Pitzel children. And following his conviction, Holmes confessed to 27 murders in Chicago, Indianapolis, and Toronto, though some people he confessed to murdering were still alive and six attempted murders. Oddly enough, Holmes was paid $7,500 by the Hearst newspapers in exchange for his confession, which was quickly found to be mostly nonsense. And while writing his confessions in prison, Holmes mentioned Drastically, his facial appearance had changed since his imprisonment, and on May 7, 1896, Holmes was hanged in prison, also known as uh, the Philadelphia County Prison, for the murder of Pitzel. And until the moment of his death, Holmes remained calmed and, and really showed very few signs of fear, anxiety, or depression, and despite this, he asked for his coffin to be contained in cement and buried ten feet deep because he was concerned grave robbers, <laughs> of all things grave robbers, would steal his body and use it for dissection. Holmes' neck did not break, and in fact, he insisted, he instead, excuse me, strangled to death slowly twitching for over 15 minutes before being pronounced dead 20 minutes after the trap had been sprung. Seems like he received an eye for an eye, if you ask me. But upon his execution, Holmes' body was interred in an unmarked grave at Holy Cross Cemetery, a Catholic cemetery in the Philadelphia western suburb of Yeadon, Pennsylvania. And on New Year's Eve of 1909, Hedgepeth, who had been pardoned for informing on Holmes, was shot and killed by police officer Edward Jaburik during a holdup at a Chicago station. On March 7, 1914, the Chicago Tribune reported that with the death of Patrick Quillen, the former caretaker of the castle, the mysteries of the Holmes castle would remain unexplained. Now, Quinlan had committed suicide by taking strychnine, and his body was found in his bedroom with a note that read, I couldn't sleep. Quinlan's surviving relatives claimed he had been haunted for several months and was suffering from hallucinations. And the castle itself was mysteriously gutted by fire in August of 1895, and according to a newspaper clipping from the New York Times, two men were seen entering the back of the building between 8 and 9 p.m., and about a half an hour later they were seen exiting the building and rapidly running away. Following several explosions, the castle went up in flames, and afterwards, investigators found a half-empty gas can underneath the back steps of the building, and the building survived the fire 
and remained in use until it was torn down in 1938. The site is occupied by the Inglewood branch of the United States Postal Service. In 2017, amid allegations Holmes had in fact escaped execution, Holmes' body was exhumed for testing, which was led by Janet Mong of the University of Pennsylvania Museum of Archaeology and Anthropology. Due to his coffin being contained in cement, his body was found not to have decomposed normally. In fact, his clothes were almost perfectly preserved and his mustache was found to be intact. The body was positively identified by his teeth as being that of Holmes. And then Holmes was reburied. Even with all the disputes of whether or not he did in fact can, uh, commit as many murders as he claimed to have, we will never really know the true story. There will always be questions left unanswered, and one has to suspect that a lot of those questions could have been answered prior to the explosions and fire at what is now become known as the Murder Castle. Thank you for listening to the Deuce Conrad Show on Spotify Podcast. In case you didn't know, you can also hear this podcast on Google Podcast and Apple Podcast and most podcast platforms across the web. For more information about tonight's show, you can also visit www.deuceconradshow.com. Visit show notes for more details.